I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and it's so thrilling to be joined today by Katie Kitamura. Her most recent novel, A Separation, was named a Best Book of the Year by over a dozen publications and translated into 16 languages and is being adapted for film. Her two previous novels, Gone to the Forest and The Long Shot, were both finalists for the New York Public Library's Young Lions Fiction Award. She teaches in the creative writing program at NYU, and her latest novel is called Intimacies. Katie, it's lovely to see you. It is so wonderful to see you as well and to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I wish we were doing this in person, though. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> Katie, I'm, I'm going to start with a very meta question. Okay. I love a meta question. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me about writing about people who are, tempt- who are attempting to create their own narratives, both personally and professionally. So like, how do you create a narrative about people attempting to create narratives? Yeah, I I think in some ways, that's the only way I can write about people, certainly in the first person. Um, The first person is really only plausible for me as, as a form for me as a writer, not as a, re- as a reader, you know, I read everything, sure. but for, for me as a writer, it, it really only works when I can approach it through a position, from a position of uncertainty. And so when I can approach first person and the question of telling stories through the position of fumbling toward it a little bit, of being uncertain, of not exactly knowing what to say, then that feels interesting to me. I'm less interested in a authoritative first person who's going to tell you a story. That's right. a mode of, of, of writing, a mode of telling that is kind of less comfortable for me. That's, that's so interesting, especially because I, I think I've grown more comfortable as a reader encountering narrators who, whose backstories I don't particularly know very well 
and who feel a little bit more transient overall. I think it's so exciting as a reader to be able to get in the head of someone who we don't necessarily know. We don't know the narrator's backstory. We don't know a lot of, of, of her long-term hopes and desires. I mean, maybe sticking a little bit to the, the meta tenor of, the, mm-hmm. of your first question, I'm always interested in the question of, you know, people can make an assumption, and I certainly can also make it myself as a reader, that there's a close alliance between a first-person narrator or even any central character and the writer. And one of the things that I know from being friends with quite a few writers is that that it, there's very rarely a one-to-one correlation between a character <laughs> and a writer, but there is a kind of imprint on the book um, of the writer's personality and character. And that often to me comes through in ways of storytelling, in voice, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's slightly more the intangible things that really reveal um, the writer's personality on the page. Um, and I suppose in a similar vein to me, the way that I'm interested in coming to know characters through the way they see the world and I feel like I can come to know a character as much through what they don't tell me as what they do tell me. And I think particularly in the case of the narrators that I'm trying to construct, they are doing so much concealing. There's so many things that they do not share, perhaps because they don't want to, or perhaps because they find themselves unable to, but there are things in their lives they cannot look at directly. So they come at them from a kind of side angle. And so for me, I feel like, there's a way to bring a reader into a relationship with a character that's not just the disclosure of information, but it's also through patterns of thought and behavior. Yeah, seeing the narrator interact with other people is a yes. really helpful clue. But Katie, do you know the narrator's backstory? Is it something that you worked out or at all on your own or is it, totally irrelevant it, it's I do know this narrator's backstory I I think I knew the narrator's backstory in a separation relatively well um and but I think what felt more important to me to really know was the particular state of mind they are in at the beginning of the novel and they are in a really particular state of mind that is not necessarily how they might be elsewhere in their lives and I kind of like the idea of meeting a narrator who's behaving in a particular way or or inhabiting a particular emotional landscape and to know that maybe they won't be there for the rest of their lives but right now within the pages of this book this is where we're confronting them and certainly both the narrator in intimacies and in a separation they're both in a state of grieving in some way and that is almost the premise for their permeability, their emotional permeability um, within the novels. And they're both- I don't know, sorry, and I will add though, that I don't have, because sometimes people ask, I don't have a name for them. You know, I I know details about their lives, but it's it's not as if in my head I'm calling them Lucy or, (laughs) you know, Marie or- Heard it here first. Whatever. And I think just like in a separation in 
intimacies, it's always exciting to see someone who you don't know very well in a new environment and, and, and trying to gather clues about who they are from, from what fascinates them about this new place they're in. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's really funny as, as we speak, I'm at the Suwannee Writers Conference in Tennessee and it's a kind of two week gathering of about 200 writers, which is a lot of writers. And somebody at dinner last night said, I mean, people could be coming here and pretending to be somebody completely different to who they are in their normal lives. And it was such, it was actually such a disquieting thought. I think everybody <laughs> around the table started looking at each other, but they were saying, well, you know, that's kind of one of the pleasures of, of travel and new contexts. And, and I think that's definitely something that both the characters in my, in, in these novels, in a separation intimacies are playing with is the idea that perhaps in this setting, they might be able to be something other than they feel themselves to be. And I think that's both perilous and exciting to them. Um, but I do want to say that the, you know, they're both strangers in, in a new place. And I think often there is this, this narrative structure where you have a, a setting and the stranger arrives and disrupts that setting. And this is almost the inverse in some ways. And I think they arrive in these places and because they're new, because they're often separated by culture or language, they have to take on this almost hyper acuity to their setting yeah. and what's around them. And I think that allows me as a writer to provide a justification for why they are endlessly interpreting, reinterpreting, scanning everything around them for clues, you know, kind of like anthropologists in a way, you know, they're really reading the culture and the room around them at all times. And I think, you know, of course you could have a character who's doing that in their day-to-day -day setting, but I think in the case of these two novels, at least for me, it's exacerbated or it's heightened by the fact that they're somewhere new. Yeah, and, and so for in intimacies, I, I must confess that when someone mentions The Hague, it's, I, I often forget that it is a city. I, I sometimes think of it as just the international court. And tell me about your research. I, I absolutely, I did go. It's funny because I think The Hague as a, as a place name has a lot of connotations, but a lot of people have sort of said to me they've never been there or they've never fully imagined it beyond these kind of landmark institutions. And definitely one of the things, you know, it's an interesting city for me to write about in conjunction with some of the themes that I wanted to write about in this book, which have to do with being transitory or transient people who are passing through languages that are passing through the idea that it's a kind of way station was definitely interesting to me. And it allowed me to create a kind of cast of characters who are not only a handful of whom are really settled in the city. Most of them are moving through or they have recently immigrated or they, they may not stay. Um, and I, you know, I decided to set it in The Hague because of the various courts that are set there. Um, and I, I, I spent, I think about two weeks there and I just did all the, the novelly, novelly stuff, <laughs> which I, you know, you, you know, the kind of, you know, I, I think about writing and so much of it is really being at your desk with a laptop, as you know, and there is something that's kind of exhilarating about being in the world in some way, doing your research. And so I, 
observed a trial at the International Criminal Court. It was the trial of Laurent Bagbo of Ivory Coast. Um, I, I walked around a lot. I went into different neighborhoods. I, I've kind of found the buildings where I thought my characters might live. Went to restaurants. I did all of those things, and I and I did have the sense of this of the of the place being very very familiar to me without entirely knowing why. And I didn't think any further on it really. I'd recently spent you know maybe about seven or eight years ago. I spent quite a lot of time in Rotterdam, so I thought it was just a kind of attendant Dutchness. Although Rotterdam feels to me very very different to the Hague, um, and. And then it was only when I finished writing the first draft that I realized that I'd spent time there as a child because my father had taken sabbatical in the Hague. So I'd been there and there were a lot of different free floating memories that suddenly dropped into place. And I had this experience of I, I called up Google Maps and my heart was really beating. And, and I said, that is where that happened. And that's where this happened. And it was a really magical experience. And I, I gave that to my character in a subsequent draft yeah. because it felt to me like, it was it was too good to it was too good not to use, um, and that ends up being a little bit an emotional through line for the novel, which is a character's move from feeling transient and displaced and not being able to to kind of order any of the fragments of her life to actually finding spots or slots for at, for at least parts of her life. Yeah, I, I love your writing about the act of interpretation and how in the court setting in particular, the narrator has to be utterly precise because you have to make sure that everybody's understanding the same kind of, kind of details. And yet if you focus too much on any one word, it becomes entirely meaningless. Yeah, I mean, interpretation was such an interesting performance or act to think about in this novel. So in a separation, the central character is a translator and there is this kind of idea that, as you said at the very start of our conversation, that she's struggling to kind of claim authorship of her narrative in some way. And I think for me, the idea that she was a translator, so she had a kind of adjacent position to authorship was really important to me. And I wanted to continue thinking about that with this character. So as an interpreter, when I started thinking about it, I really thought about it as somebody who was almost a kind of channel or a vessel for language. So there's all this language that passes through her and some of it is institutional language. Some of it is the language of the accused person that she is interpreting for. And of course, um, you know, it's hard not to think of the ways in which that's not a million miles away from what novelists do as well. A lot of the work <laughs> we do is of course channeling voices and, yeah. and uh, putting that on the page. But I guess two things happened. One is that I really did, did feel from the start that I wanted to think about what the psychological and ethical costs of that might be, what it means for language to pass through you. It leaves a trace, you also imprint on it. There's no kind of pure untouched passage of language in any, in any situation. Um, so that's a little bit one of the things that she comes to grapple with over the course of the novel. But I think one thing that I realized from doing my research and talking to different interpreters is that they were not at all what I thought they would be as personalities. They were in fact quite charismatic. They were very, very dynamic personalities. And that was when I realized that interpretation is a performance of sorts and that they need to inflect language with 
all the things that it can carry, which is not just literal meaning, but you know, language is also ironic and they need to communicate that content. And thinking about that challenge, thinking about what that must cost psychologically and emotionally really made me become much more aware of the pressures that would be operating on these characters. Mm. And that's so interesting to me that you call the interpreters charismatic because of, of course, um, the narrator kind of often feels like she has to kind of get her poise and um, gain some confidence. And it's, it's the men mostly yes. around her who are the possess possessors of the, this great charisma that, that she uh, witnesses. Yeah, it was, it was really only when, there's always, it's always interesting writing a book because you are writing it and you maybe are not sure what it's about and then you finish a draft and then you have to go back and look at it and you think, <laughs> oh, this is what I've done. This is what I was interested in. And it was when I, you know, I was writing it from kind of 2016-ish mm. onward and it was during the time of Me Too. And although I didn't consciously by any means decide to put instances of sexual harassment into the novel. When I finished writing it, I looked back and I thought it, there's so much sexual harassment and intimidation in this novel. And I think that makes sense to me because it's a novel about power and structures of power. And it is about how often men, certainly in the case of this novel, men um, manipulate and use harassment as a form of power. So in these scenes, I think, those scenes of harassment and intimidation are of course not about desire but entirely about exerting power over characters different characters um and so there are a lot of male monsters i would say in this in this novel i mean the thing is of course i had a, so much fun writing, sure, <laughs> writing <of> they, you know they, they they came with alarming ease i would say <laughs> In particular, there's, of course, a defense attorney who um, the narrator also encounters in her personal life. So she's got this weird um, connection to this man who is charismatic, among other things. Yes, he was a lot of fun to write. That is for sure, in part because I think the book is I don't know if it's gently mocking him or harshly mocking him or in what what in what register exactly that's happening. But um, he was a, he was a lot of fun to write. But one of the things that I wanted to think about in writing his character is how is how context and institutions and authority can give gravitas to absurd and ridiculous people. And so when the narrator first meets this character, he's just a man at a party who is a sex pest basically like she just he he's just this kind of appalling person and she finds it impossible to believe that anybody would possibly take him seriously and then she subsequently sees him in a position of considerable authority and power at the court and I think it's I think it's not simply that she she looks at him and she sees okay this is the institution this is a context that is giving him this authority and seriousness and gravitas. But I think she also realizes that the destabilizing moment for her is realizing that if she had met this man in a different context, she would have read him in a completely different way. And I think 
it's really easy for us to think that we're responding to people and we're responding to something intrinsic mm -hmm. and that our character judgments are based on this intrinsic assessment of their personality. But in fact, what we're really assessing is their context, the people, how the people around them are behaving all the time. We are drawing on all of those to try to understand who we are dealing with. And so I think that is a more unnerving realization for her is not only that his charisma is constructed or drawn from the institution, but also that in, in the right circumstances, she would have absolutely fallen prey to it. <laughs> absolutely. And then, of course, he is um, quite literally standing with uh, a former president of an unnamed African country who has his own sense of charisma that's wrapped up in the performance of um, what he wants to project. Yes, yes. I mean, one of the things that first drew me to this material was, although the, the, the kind of concrete arc and facts of the trial in the novel are most closely based on the trial of Lohan Bagbo, but the kind of kernel of this novel was really when um, way back in 2009, I heard Charles Taylor speaking on the radio and he famously spoke at his own trial in his own defense. And he is also famously a extremely gifted orator and he has remarkable rhetorical skills. And it was listening to him speak and listening to the way he was able to manipulate language and narrative to create this very disturbing, almost moral relativism. The fact that he was both appalling and monstrous and egomaniacal, but also very, very compelling. And I don't think I was the only person to have this particular reaction to him. And so I was always thinking about the court in particular as a kind of venue or kind of arena of performance. I think I was thinking about the fact that at the court, the matters that are at the center of the trial are always matters of extreme gravity and have to do with suffering and pain. And those are things that where authenticity is, is really at the heart of what we're talking about. But it is surrounded by an incredible amount of artifice, both on the side of the prosecution and defense. And it is through those layers of artifice that something, you know, that a, that a trial is able to take place. And that was definitely something that I found myself thinking about. I wanted to kind of point out the degree to which there is a very, very performative element to the way a trial takes place. And that this kind of ideal of justice necessarily has to inhabit a quite compromised form when it's enacted on the ground. You really hit this home for me, even just thinking about um, the supporters of the former president, um, who are spectators in this trial. And it would be easy to imagine that such a man would not have many people support him. Yeah, it was, I, I mean, it, that, that was entirely based on my experience of observing Bagbo's trial, which is that there were, his supporters were absolutely there. And he seemed to have, if not a relationship, he recognized them, he would look up from the courtroom and he would make eye contact with them and they would nod to him and he would nod back to them. Um, he, and they were people who seemed to be coming every single day in order to observe the trial. And I, I, I don't know specifically what their relationship to him was, but the fidelity seemed to me very obvious.
Yeah, and then and then they kind of feed off of each other, and yes. I assume lend him more legitimacy. Yes, yes, I think legitimacy and also the kind of mechanism that props him up within the court is 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 how it felt a little bit to me in in the way that a performer feeds off of an audience. Yes, I mean they they are quite literally the audience. You know, they are in in a public gallery observing observing the trial and they are such um avid fans that how how can they not elevate him in some way speaking of having fun with things um yeah. we talked about this um a couple of weeks ago but tell me about writing about the art exhibit where um the narrator's friend uh works and tell me about describing the opulence there, the food there, and, um, and and what you were doing with it. Yeah, I mean, that scene I always knew would be in the middle of the book, and it would be a kind of hinge between the two parts of the book. It's, it's probably the part that has to kind of create some airflow within the novel a little bit. And I knew I wanted it to be outside of the, the kind of space. You know, the novel has a lot of very claustrophobic spaces, whether it's the court or the apartment where the narrator is staying. And I just wanted to have something that had a little bit more air moving through it. Um, and I knew that I wanted to write about art and I wanted to write about it within the context again of an institution. And so the things that I was thinking about was staging a kind of encounter between the narrator and a work of art, which in the case of, of this particular scene is a painting by Judith Leister called The Proposition, um, which is a scene as I interpret it of sexual harassment. Um, and, and that particular power dynamic, which is contained within a, a single image. And so I love writing about art because I think art tells stories in ways that are different to the ways that novels tell stories. And I like to have that kind of diversity of form within a piece of fiction. But then within that, I wanted to think about how power is operating within the context of the museum as a whole. And so it's an opening, the curator who is a friend of the narrators has been tasked with um, making the work more accessible, bringing in a more diverse audience. But of course, at the opening itself, it's still the kind of elite majority of white audience, um, you know, questions of who was inside the canon, who was kept out of the canon, Judith Leister's own position as a kind of canonical uh, golden age artist was fluid over the years, I would say, you know, mm. she, um, as a female painter, it, it, it was certainly not, she was under-recognized, I would say, historically. Um, and then, of course, the question of where the sources of funding and power for this institution come from, which is the Moritz House in, in The Hague, which is a real museum, um, which is housed in the former building of Johann Moritz, who was a slave trader and a colonialist and has this very, very heavy, you know, you're literally inside the house of the slave mm -hmm. trader. And very recently that has been, there has been some important contextualizing work done by the museum, but at the time, 2016, which is when the novel is set, that had not yet been done. So there's a lot of different things that were floating through that. Um, but I, I think I also wanted to have a little bit of levity. So there is, the exhibition is called Slow Food and it's, it's, it's a 
exhibition of paintings of, of, of still life paintings of food. And then um, there's a food artist, food performance artist, I guess you would call it, who uh, recreates all of the paintings inside of uh, empty frames. And then the dinner guests for the opening kind of, kind of reach through and demolish the painting. And there was something about the idea of the people who are there to support the art also taking pleasure in demolishing the art and then the kind of general absurdity of the scene that was a lot of fun to write. I mean, one of the challenges of writing about art, and we talked about this the other week because I so admired in Tamima's novel, how she had managed to create, and this is a novel, The Startup Wife, how she had managed to create plausible startup companies yeah. and startup ideas. And, and similarly, somebody like Rachel Kushner in The Flamethrowers is able to create all of these artworks that feel, artists and artworks that feel plausible and specific to their time as well that were being mm -hmm. produced in that moment and so I suppose I was just trying to kind of look around me and see the kind of work that was being made at that time and and try to create something that had a whiff of plausibility to it yes the idea of an old rich guy grabbing a turkey leg off of a platter just seems like yes um and Katie um something we talked about a couple of weeks ago that that I wanted to get back to because you sounded surprised that we didn't talk much about the relationship between the narrator and her boyfriend Adrian who she knows is married is supposed to be going through a breakup and you were surprised that people readers seemed angry at him for disappearing on the narrator. And I, and, and I thought when you were saying that, I, I was furious. <laughs> I couldn't handle <laughs> I guess I was curious to know if the people who felt upset had never done anything similar in their life ever, which I find hard to believe. I think one of the things that I, I wanted to do in the, in the book was take something that was very ordinary and actually I think not uncommon, which is somebody retreating for a little bit in the early stages of a relationship. And through the writing, kind of send the narrator into a tailspin over this silence, which I also think is not unusual or unreasonable. And, um, and, and the kind of discrepancy between your own experience and your own emotional reaction, which is valid, and then the thing from the other person's point of view. And that's, that kind of schism is also operating, albeit in a slightly different way in the Judith Leister painting. You know, it's, it's when the narrator looks at it, she thinks there are two points of view that are irreconcilable and that's where the true tension of this painting is. And similarly, I think in that relationship, we have her point of view and it's an excruciating kind of silence and it's incredibly painful. But I think what I, hope to do at the end of the novel is to briefly kind of flip into what might be his point of view, which is that he's going through a messy divorce. He needs to figure out what is going to happen with his children. He's only been seeing this woman for a few months and he's just gone a little bit quiet while he tries to deal with what is <laughs> happening. So, I mean, I wanted to stage a situation that would seem reasonable from both perspectives. Um, I mean, for obvious reasons, the reader is much more uh, allied with the narrator's sure. experience. Um, but I, I was hoping it would be a forgivable, <laughs> a 
a forgivable a forgivable crime on the boyfriend's part i don't know maybe the jury's still out on that it, it helps to imagine a couple of scenes after the book has ended <laughs> he's still got some improving to do I think. <laughs> katie this has been a delight as always um before we say goodbye are there a couple of books you'd like to recommend yes um i have been recommending to almost everybody i talk to i really am pressing this book on people but uh the book that i've been recommending over the past year is a novel by the i believe german writer anna segers called transit mm -hmm. and it is set in occupied france during the second world war and it is about a group of refugees who are trying to get out of France. Um, and they are going, it's, it's, it sounds unlikely, but it's kind of a thriller about bureaucracy. They're trying to get the right paperwork to leave the country and survive. And it is incredibly tense and um, also beautifully written. It's also, there's also a kind of narrative about stolen identity in the middle of it. And there's a love story as well. But one of the reasons that I love this book so much and has really struck me over the last year in particular is because Sagers herself fled France during the war and she did make it onto a boat and she ended up in, she got to Mexico and she survived the war. Um, and once she arrived in Mexico, she wrote this novel. And so it was published in 1944 during the war. And the fact it is a novel without a drop of sentimentality or self-pity it's a highly ironic ironized novel and she was able to achieve that beautiful distance and critical eye in the middle of the tumult of what was happening around her and to me that is really extraordinary because i know if i were to try to write i'm, I'm by no means trying to compare the pandemic to the second world war but if i were to try to write something that was you know taking in the things that have happened kind of between 2016 and 2020 i think if I were to try to do that right now, very quickly, I seriously doubt my ability to create that kind of critical distance. Um, and so I really, really admire that. And then another short little novel that I recently read that I loved is um, by the Austrian writer Adelbel Stifter, and it's called Rock Crystal, and it was put out by the New York Review of Books. And it's a very, very simple little story about two children who are trying to get home on Christmas Day and they get lost in a snowstorm. And it's an absolutely harrowing story that is filled with dread. I mean, I could not put it down. I had to read it in one go because otherwise I, I, I didn't, it was not a novel where you could read it, put it down, go talk to your neighbor right. or make a cup of tea. You just, you were in it for the whole thing. Um, and I believe the New York Review of Books have recently published the collected novellas that Rock Crystal is part of. So those are my two recommendations. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you, Maris. This was so much fun. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>